Jim, and this is Speaking of Race. Last episode, we talked about Joe being in India, and then we talked a little bit about the Indian caste system. We talked about the way race science developed in India and how that interacted with the caste system during the British rule from the 18th through the 20th centuries. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to it, because otherwise this episode won't make as much sense to you. I had a peacock in that last episode, remember? I feel we should kill that <laughs> As well as a peacock, we had a bunch of race science ideas and people that we tried to introduce in the last episode. I was really into the thugs and the seven decapitated heads that went to Scotland. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> However, <laughs> we tried to introduce William Jones. Uh, he's the guy who both came up with the notion that there is an, an Indo-European Ur language and also introduced the notion of Aryan invasion theory. This was in the late 1700s. We also introduced Herbert H. Risley, who was the guy that I kept comparing to Darth Vader in the last episode. <laughs> he headed the Indian census in the early 20th century. He's also the guy that introduced the nasal index that was developed in France and England to India. Jim, how does that nasal index thing work again? The nasal index is the ratio of the nose's height to its breadth. It's associated with climate, especially with humidity. And Risley, following the French anthropologist Topinard, used it as a measure of what he thought were the different races within the Indian caste system. So Risley's racialized caste system had profound impacts that continue to resonate in India, really right up into the present. Today, we're going to start off by focusing on the situation of what the British referred to as pariahs, or untouchables, who since the 1970s have been referred to as Dalits. And we're going to carry it up to the 21st century to see how ideas about caste and race for Dalits have, or perhaps have not, changed. And along the way, we're going to talk about India's independence movement, because questions around caste really played a big role in that process, too. And then we'll finish up today by talking about the exciting new developments in genomics and how that relates to the Aryan invasion theory. So that's a lot of stuff to cover. Hang on. And there are a lot of important things to discuss that have relevance. And that's true even if you're not really that interested in India. <gasps> Gasp! <laughs> there are important reasons to care about this story well beyond the implications for South Asia, right? We're trying to address the myopic perspective of Americans about race and their general ignorance about science. It's hard enough in this country to catch someone's interest when it's a story about race in the U.S. Maybe sometimes you can grab someone's attention by talking about the racist ideas behind the Holocaust. But aside from that, Americans don't think very much about science or race. And probably care even less about science and race outside of their own immediate context. Absolutely. In other words, it gives us a new lens with which to examine how we use scientific language and concepts to make seemingly concrete statements with implications for vast numbers of people all across the world. I'd argue that it also sheds light on our current moment with tensions surrounding race, refugees, immigration from Mexico, Central America, and the U.S., Syria, North Africa, Central Europe, all of this stuff. We've faced a lot of these questions before. An intrinsic value, history, anthropology, yay. No, seriously, though. I mean, anthropology, yay. And history also. Yay. <laughs> Joe. Jim. Coming back to the broadcast, I'd like to start by going back to something that you talked about last time. When we were talking about the caste system, remember you told us that the castes originally derived from 
ancient Hindu texts that were drawing analogies between occupational groups and various parts of the cosmic man who sacrificed, created all of humanity. Um, yes, so, so that was the Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. But then you mentioned the group called Pariahs. Uh, I noticed you didn't assign them a body part. Right, they were the slaves. Whoa, can you tell us some more about that? Sure, yeah. India had slavery for thousands of years, and that so-called pariah caste, also known as untouchables or outcasts at the time, they were the slaves. Maybe today's episode should be about explaining how race science has impacted this untouchable caste in India. Absolutely. So if we're going to do that, I think we have to start by saying that just like in the British colonies in North America around the same time, slavery in British India in the 1700s was hereditary and conditions were brutal and really violent. The British colonial economy depended really heavily on slavery in India, mostly for agricultural production of staples like wheat and rice, just like in North America. Famously, the British also used Indian slaves to harvest tea and sugarcane, as well as dyes and textiles like jute and hemp and indigo. Wait a second. The British outlawed the slave trade in the early 1800s. In fact, they passed the Acts of Abolition across the entirety of the British Empire in 1833. So slavery must have become illegal across India decades before the former British colonies in America emancipated slaves. So what happened to these untouchable slaves after the Abolition Act? Well, it presented a huge ideological problem for the British, such a big problem that they gave it a catchy name, the Pariah Problem. And there's a really fantastic book by the same name that That's I'll put that in. Catchy. It, it is catchy. Well, it's alliterative. Okay, good point. <laughs> in any case, um, people talked about the Pariah Problem all the time in popular media. And, and in essence, the problem was that the British had to decide what to do with the fact that a whole lot of the money they were making on India which was a good portion of the entire imperial economy, was put in jeopardy by this lofty new proclamation that they themselves had just made. So how did they go about solving it? I'm not sure they ever did, to be honest. Come to think of it in some ways, it was like what was happening in the U.S. at the same time. Parts of the empire were like, hey, you can't have slaves, that's morally wrong. And the part of the empire that was making money from slave labor was like, what slavery? These people aren't slaves. We didn't bring them here. This is just how these brown people do things. We shouldn't meddle if they believe they were born to cultivate wheat or pick the tea that we're making tons of money off of. And so for the most part, white British people downplayed how vast and how cruel the slavery system was across the empire. Wait another second, though. <laughs> William Wilberforce and then Canada not being a place where there were slaves and then the Caribbean stop having slaves in places like Jamaica. In fact, there's a story that the Rothschild family lent the British government about 15 million pounds, which is several hundred billion pounds today, just to defray the cost of emancipation, something the U.S. never even considered. And in fact, the British took that so seriously that they paid back the Rothschild for the last century and a half, didn't finish until 2015, really. Now, granted, most of that money went to the slave owners. And in fact, Prime Minister David Cameron is one of the descendants of those slave owners that received all that money. But still, this did make Canadian cities the places that slaves from the United States fled to. So you can't tell me that slavery was still going on in the British Empire. But that's a story about the West Indies and North America. Oh. Don't you remember the 1857 Indian Rebellion I talked about last time? Remind us, please. Well, you could just go back and listen to that episode. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, 
Rebellions against the British East India Company led to the crown taking over administration in India. That was the beginning of the Victorian Raj. Rebellions are complicated things, but this one was partly sparked because the company basically ignored the 1833 Abolition Act. Uh. The pariah problem the East Indies didn't get addressed in the 1830s. Parliament passed another slavery act almost 10 years later in 1843, specifically aimed at India, but that one only outlawed chattel slavery, chattel meaning treating people as property. It didn't cover hereditary slavery, slavery because of your caste. And remember, uh, at about that same time, caste is about to become biological race because of H.H. Risley and his nasal index measurements. Right. And many untouchables were hereditary slaves. So despite the fact that slavery was outlawed in the empire through most of the 1800s, de facto slavery still continued. Man, I feel like European white people got into these kinds of convoluted philosophical gymnastics events over race and morality and religion all the time in the 19th century. Yeah. What do you mean just the 19th century? When did things begin to change for untouchables in India? There's no more slavery there, right? It's complicated. That spoken like a historian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me fast forward to the 20th century. So by that point, untouchables had taken up the name Dalit, which I said in the last episode is a Sanskrit word that means broken or oppressed. And that's how we should refer to them here. Gandhi and Ambedkar were the founding fathers of the Republic of India. I've heard of Gandhi, of course, but I'm not sure I know who the other guy is. Well, Gandhi became famous as the leader of the South African independence movement before returning to his native India and becoming the face of the Indian independence movement. Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar was a Dalit rights leader and the principal architect of India's constitution. They didn't really see eye to eye, did they? Well, in retrospect, Ambedkar and Gandhi had somewhat similar paths, but their trajectories to get there were pretty different. Gandhi came from a moderately well-to-do family near the modern-day Pakistani border. His father was a local government official, and Gandhi ended up using his father's connections to earn a formal British education and then enter law. And Bedkar was a Dalit, an untouchable, and he was the youngest of 14 children. He was the only one of his family to finish high school, and he was the only Dalit in his high school. He went through the Indian system and then got an award to study economics as a graduate student at Columbia in New York in 1913. And so at Columbia, he wrote two master's theses on Indian economics. And then he wrote a third thesis, which he thought would earn him his PhD from Columbia. But Columbia wasn't so sure it wanted to give him a doctorate. So then Ambedkar got accepted to the London School of Economics to study for a DSC, which is another more math-based doctorate. And he finished that one in 1923. Four years later, in 1927, Columbia finally awarded his PhD in economics for his third thesis. That is a freaking lot of school right there. Jesus. Yes, it is. He was an incredibly highly educated person. And he worked for most of his life as a lawyer and a politician. By about 1927, he had begun to get involved in activism around Dalit rights, participating in marches for access to drinking water and the right for Dalits to enter Hindu temples. They'd been barred from using public drinking facilities and going into temples until that time. Later, he was involved in public burnings of the Laws of Manu, which is a Vedic text considered really foundational in Hinduism that advocates discrimination against Dalits. In fact, there's a day that is now an annual day for doing this. It's December 25th not related to the fact that that's also Christmas. It's just a coincidence. Okay. So from the little that I know about him and Bedkar, the way that he enters into sort of British history is that he argues with British, the British colonial government during the 20s and 30s 
to get seats reserved in the Indian Congress for individuals from lower castes. Is that right? Right. So in the 1930s, which is prior to Indian independence, the British had begun designating some caste groups as forward castes, which was usually Brahmins and landed caste groups, the wealthier castes, and others as backward, which was essentially non-Brahmins or non-landed groups. And they did this for political purposes. The backward groups were referred to as scheduled, by which they meant listed castes and tribes. So scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. And they were called scheduled because the British had literally written them down somewhere as targets for potential uplift. They're still called today SCs, that's scheduled castes, and STs, scheduled tribes. And they're both pretty heavily racialized, but especially tribal groups. How so are they racialized? Is, is this more of Risley's nasal index uh, material or is this a different racialization? Believe it or not, it's a holdover from the good old Aryan invasion idea. Ah, of course. <laughs> so part of the Aryan invasion that we didn't talk about very much last time was the theory that lower castes in modern-day India must be the descendants of Aboriginal groups that had been conquered when those Aryans supposedly invaded. So in other words, you're saying when the Aryans came in, they conquered the other groups and they created a caste system to solidify their own power over them. Right. So that's how the thinking went. European colonial officers and missionary ethnographers wrote about this a bunch, including talking about common ancestry between Indian tribal groups and Africans because of what they perceived as similar physical features. They were speculating about all this. And this, this is hypothetical, but it still dominates lay people's ideas about Indian prehistory. And it means that tribal groups are viewed as politically and racially inferior. This shows up all the time in media with stereotyping of tribal and low caste groups, even hate crimes, which we're going to talk about more in a little bit. Anyway, so, so the British had been writing down or scheduling the supposedly backward castes and tribes because these groups were getting politically organized and demanding equal representation in government. If I remember right, this is the thing that made Ambedkar and Gandhi not see eye to eye on stuff, right? Gandhi yeah. was committed to throwing off British colonial rule, even if that meant pretending that the internal caste system was fine. I mean, not, not fine. Ambedkar and Gandhi both agreed that caste-based inequality was unjust. It's just that Gandhi thought caste abolition should be a matter of Hindu religious reform and so could safely be set aside for the moment in favor of what he really was after, which was political independence from Britain, and then Indian national unity. Is that basically right? Yeah, that's right. Whereas Embedkar saw caste as a matter of social and political injustice that needed to be reformed right away by law in order to have a free and fair Indian nation. More like the goal of the American Civil Rights Movement? Yeah, something like that. And interestingly, at roughly the same time as well. So Ambedkar, with his two doctorates, was chair of the committee tasked with drafting the Indian Constitution after independence from Britain in 1947. He also served as the first law minister of the government of India. This was really a visionary appointment to have someone at the helm of the creation of the new nation who'd been so oppressed so recently. Did Indian society end up being structured in a fundamentally different way? Actually, yeah. India does have one of the oldest and most extensive affirmative action programs in the world, which they refer to as caste reservations, using the British English sense of that word. Um, and Bedkar's original provisions in the Constitution of India mandated 22.5% of seats in government for scheduled caste or scheduled tribe communities, both in the government and in public sector employment. 
and those have been expanded several times since. But there have been some pretty rough patches, and it's in those rough patches that this debate about whether caste and race are the same thing often resurfaces. I remember the militant group called the Dalit Panthers, totally inspired and connected with the the Black Panthers in the United States, organized in the 70s to oppose the lack of civil rights as promised in the Constitution. And then 20 years later in the 90s, the number of caste groups eligible for affirmative action programs increased. But it turns out the definition of who qualifies for this was hazy and led to more and more conflict over the 90s. Then in 2001, there was the UN World Conference Against Racism held in Durban, South Africa. Ooh, and that was the rocky one where the U.S. and Israel basically just walked out of the conference because of perceived anti-Semitism, right? Yeah, it was a contentious one for India, too. In a preparatory meeting, the question arose whether the Indian caste system ought to be addressed as a racist system at this conference. But the Indian external affairs minister, Jaswant Singh, declared that caste and race weren't related, so caste should be left alone and India shouldn't be criticized during this conference. Well-known Indian sociologist Andre Bate agreed that treating caste as a category of race would be in his words, politically mischievous and scientifically nonsensical. He went on to say, we cannot throw out the concept of race by the front door when it is being misused for asserting social superiority and bring it again through the back door to misuse it in the cause of the oppressed. And even more recently, that conflict has gotten more frequent and more bloody. Starting in 2016 in the state of Gujarat, there was a spate of violence against Dalits, and this set off a ripple effect of protests and violence following those protests that still hasn't yet let up. I read about a big incident in Uttar Pradesh in May 2017, where a bunch of people from a Rajput community attacked some Dalits celebrating Ambedkar's birthday, and they killed one person and burned a bunch of houses. These things just seem to keep cropping up. I think, sadly, there's evidence that this might be part of a long-term trend toward increased caste-based violence. Sharma at the University of Delhi recently published a paper, and the paper found a tight correlation between violent crime against Dalits and the shrinking standard of the living gap between the lower and the upper castes. And then a book came out in 2017 called Ground Down by Growth, Tribe, Caste, Class, and Inequality in 21st Century India. And that book asks why India's recent economic growth hasn't seemed to alleviate any poverty, which is what the trickle-down theories of capitalist economics say that it should do. The authors find that middle and upper castes are taking direct action to retain and even to grow the existing economic divides. They target high-cost items purchased by lower castes, like houses and vehicles. And if that wasn't enough, they use public humiliation, sexual violence, even public stripping to reinforce caste and racial boundaries that their newfound wealth of the lower castes might possibly break through. Yeah, so there seems to be an uptick in caste-related violence, particularly since the current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, took over in 2014. He's taken some steps towards addressing this escalating violence since he took office, but many people see these as sort of empty gestures. Modi himself is a right-wing populist with a history of strong Hindu nationalism, and strong ties to an Indian state known for some notoriously grisly Hindu-Muslim communal violence where thousands were killed in the 1990s. And coincidentally, ties to the Trump organization. Not coincidentally. This could be reading, you know, current events of what's going on in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So when I was in Delhi a couple weeks ago, um, the capital of India, of course, at the beginning of, of my trip, 
I noticed as I was driving by one of the city's main roads called Janpath, um, a, a new Ambedkar Center. It was right there on Janpath. It's this big, shiny, glass-mirrored building. So I decided to stop by and check it out one day, and here's what I found. Okay, I'm pulling up to the Dr. Ambedkar International Center. Thank you. So this is a brand new center just inaugurated in December 2017, so it's less than six months old, and it is gigantic and beautiful. I'm standing outside right now of a statue about 70 feet high that depicts Dr. Ambedkar. And no surprise there, it's closed. And there are other Ambedkar centers in Delhi. But Modi created this new one after all of these riots related to caste violence in 2016 and 2017. But the center itself still isn't up and running as of summer 2018. So after my visit, I was talking with one of my friends, Roshan, about it. And here's what he had to say. I think it's complete lip service. What do you mean by that? Um, this seems to be a very typical response of the Modi government to any issue, which is uh, try and find something shiny and put a misleading name on it um, so as to convince the population that they're doing something about it. So you mean it's not a genuine effort? Uh, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, it is a building that was standing some 10 months before it was called an Ambedkar Center. Uh, at that point, it had no statue and no name. Uh, when it became politically expedient, it suddenly a statue appeared and a name appeared. Uh, there are still no experts assigned to this building, and there are no books in the libraries of that building. So oh. I leave it to you to decide. So there's just a statue and a sign, but the building's not even open? Correct. So I think part of the problem here is that there's this pervasive politics of denial around caste in middle-class India today. People use the language of equity and unity that are, in fact, at the heart of the nation's democratic principles, but they use that language to actually undercut equity and unity. While working to undercut policies that would address discrimination, they say things like, I don't see caste. I don't discriminate based on caste. Everyone in India now has equal opportunity. So people who want to get ahead just have to work hard and they'll naturally rise to the top. And it's that same sentiment that allows Modi to slap a new name on a shiny building in central Delhi and say, look, I'm doing something about caste-based inequity. Sounds a lot like colorblind racism in this country. It sure does. It's almost spooky how much that sounds like the notion like. of colorblindness. That's a whole nother episode we could do. Euro-Americans don't sense interpersonal racial discrimination. At least they don't sense what they assume their parents and grandparents sensed. So they vote against policies that could address the racism built into the larger social and political and economic system that still goes on. Right. So because there aren't these instances of just blatant interpersonal racism, people sort of assume it's gone. And the same is true in India. There's structural racism in the U.S. There's structural casteism in India. And that includes things like economic resources, personal caste-based connections, linguistic and cultural competencies that aren't taught in school, but that are valued in contemporary India as part of fit or merit by potential employers, for example. And also people in cities, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of migration from rural areas into urban areas in India right now. And when people come from 
rural to urban areas, they get sorted into caste-based enclaves by personal connection and also by property brokers. And that just reinforces caste inequities. These things can totally make or break one's life chances in big cities of India, but because they happen on this person-to-person informal level, it's really hard to fix. So even formal sector regulations like caste reservations and government seats don't get to the heart of them. It feels to me like this caste-related violence, both the explicit stuff like the beatings and the public strippings and then the implicit systemic stuff is really symptomatic of an underlying caste race tension. And that tension was introduced centuries ago during European colonization and then never really went away despite efforts by people like Abedkar to get rid of it. There's still, you might argue, a pariah problem in India today. Yeah, good point. You could see it even now. If you step away from the violence against the Dalit groups for a minute, I mean, it's just crazy how stereotypes about caste and race and skin color that date all the way back to Risley and the British Raj also are all over popular media in, in contemporary India. Yeah, I mentioned the sociologist Andre Bate a little while ago. He's a well-known Indian sociologist who wrote in the 1960s about how the terms fair and beautiful are often used interchangeably in many Indian languages. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to say that, as people still do, marriage ads in newspapers then and now on the internet usually include the potential bride's skin color, with fair being the most prized category. Absolutely. I keep a, a little stockpile of those matrimonial ads. And when I teach about this, I pass them around. And every single one for women has some reference to skin color. There's also a huge multi-billion dollar skin whitening industry, both in India and in China. In India, a skin cream called Fair and Lovely is the highest grossing whitening cosmetic. So Bate wasn't wrong. Also, when I teach about this, I like to show a series of ads from the Pons Company for their product called White Beauty from 2008. They produced this this five-part ad series starring two very high-profile Indian actors, Saif Ali Khan and Priyanka Chopra. Uh, Chopra is now the one who's starring in the U.S. TV show Quantico. I remember you you did this uh, for my class last semester. Man, those white beauty ads, <laughs> they're not subtle. Uh, I, if I remember how it goes, the darker-skinned girl can't get the guy to notice her, and then she starts using the skin whitening cream, and then he suddenly falls madly in love with her and leaves his current fiancé, who I have to say is already so white, she actually looks kind of <laughs> European. Yeah. Once I made the mistake of getting a facial in India and without asking the person bleached my skin to try to get rid of my terrible, terrible, disfiguring freckles, (laughs) it it didn't end well. Sorry. Yeah. You also see colorism all over Bollywood. Villains in the films tend to be played by the darker skinned individuals. And at one time they even used North Indian actors with lighter skin to star in South Indian films in spite of these being two completely separate film industries in different languages. Yeah, just over the last few weeks, my daughter's gotten really into reading Amar Chitra Katha, which is a series of really famous comic books based on Hindu mythology. They are amazing. They're full of blood and and war and stuff. Um, I'm going to post a picture when we post this episode of a frame from the story about the birth of the goddess Durga, who was created by the other Hindu gods when this demon took over the world and demanded that everyone stop worshiping the Hindu gods and only worship him. In the comic book, he and his demon followers are depicted as brown-skinned men, while the gods and their pious followers are as white as lilies. 
I sound like a broken record here, but it sounds to me like some ideas about caste and race and color and even human value or worth remain basically unchanged in India from 100 years ago. And I'm telling you guys, history matters. It does. You know, as as a Disney uh, file myself, I have to look at this and think of uh, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and Mickey Mouse and Black Pete as the bad guy. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, you're right. It happens in the U.S. too. Absolutely. Popeye Bluto was originally black. Exactly. So. Yeah. Well, in addition to my Disney collection, uh, we also <laughs> have discussed in the in our episode on the Human Genome Project that we dropped last November that genomics is being used to further these race-related arguments now in India. It's all over the genomics literature. There are scholars out there who are really interested in putting the Aryan invasion theory to the test by trying to trace ancestry-informative markers in the DNA of people from different caste backgrounds to try to infer their degree of Aryanness. So in other words, they're doing exactly what Risley was doing, only they're using genes instead of noses. This is part of a long trend. When Risley did his his uh, census survey with his anthropometry, that took off in India. It spawned a huge growth industry of Indians doing physical anthropology, and that has simply grown all the way through the 20th century and into the 21st. And this was reflected during my career. When I was asked to review papers for the American Journal of Physical Anthropology on topics like the length of the second joint of middle fingers or the number of hairs on the big toe, which was being done to compare (laughs) tribal groups usually, but sometimes it was also done to compare between Indian castes. Yes, this does hark back to the 19th century measurements of Paul Broca in France trying to discriminate races on the basis of weird anthropometric measurements. Of course, the Indian anthropologists embraced genetics and genomics as molecular anthropology took off in the second half of the 20th century. And to no one's surprise, we've seen increasing numbers of studies that compare tribal groups and castes for everything from traditional blood groups to DNA sequences. And, you know, the peopling of the Indian subcontinent is still sort of a mystery. And there is some good work being done here to figure out what that peopling might have looked like. But there are a lot of problems, especially with the genomic studies on caste-based differences. To start with, Indians aren't terribly well represented in global whole genome databases like the Thousand Genomes Project. And those Indian populations that are represented are sometimes drawn from diaspora groups living in the U.S. or in the U.K. rather than actually in India. So there's a problem here establishing good reference populations, and that becomes especially problematic when we're trying to compare Indian genes to supposedly outsider genes like Aryan genes. I would imagine that just because of the great diversity in India, it just would be hard to know how to group populations in order to sample them, right? Yeah, so there's one study in particular that I'm thinking of that claimed to find very little genetic difference between linguistically and geographically distinct caste populations in India. This was from 2006. Well, this would suggest that sort of Indian is a pan subcontinental race, but more recently, the study was critiqued for lumping possibly distinct genetic populations, even within a single state together, and therefore artificially flattening out the data at that level. Even the most recent studies using really large data sets like a 2016 study about the genetic reconstruction of India point out that there was pretty free admixture among Indian populations till about 70 generations ago, which would have been like 1,500 years or so. 
Differences they see today in DNA between caste groups can't be fully explained by caste endogamy or the inbreeding of caste groups. And that's a really important point because remember, people like Risley were arguing that the practice of endogamy must have preserved these sort of pure type caste groups that made them into distinct races in the first place. Of course, we do see patterns in the anthropometric and the genetic data that are coming out of these studies in India. It's just that they're not racial patterns. Uh, there are differences based on ancestry and, and evolutionary history of the different groups and levels of admixture between them. While the differences that we see are easily detectable using the various statistical clustering techniques, which we discussed also in that November episode, they don't rise to the level of races on the basis of the very low levels of variation that can be accounted for between the castes when they report diversity partitioning statistics. Just like the U.S. census categories we discussed in that earlier episode also don't rise to the level of biological race on the basis of the diversity partitioning statistics. What they do show is related to usually the four or five ancestral populations and levels of admixture and that has led to the variation that we see in modern-day Indian. And yet studies continue to suggest that there's some strong genetic signal of the Aryan invasion based on what the researchers claim are European, Middle Eastern, or maybe Central Asian genes found in various Indian populations. For example, there was a study last year in 2017 by a team at the University of Huddersfield which is in the UK, called A Genetic Chronology for the Indian Subcontinent Points to Heavily Sex-Biased Dispersals. And this, this study got picked up by a business journalist named Tony Joseph and published in a widely cited article in The Hindu, which is a national newspaper in India, that same summer. Let me guess. The widely read, published, popular one by Joseph said that there was an Aryan invasion, right? Yeah, that's right. But uh, if you look at the that paper, you find something more complex. Uh, yeah, essentially what they find, this, this paper is pretty questionable, but we're talking about it here because it was really widely cited both in sort of the scholarly world and in popular media. Essentially what they're saying is that most of the new genetic material coming into the Indian subcontinent within the last few thousand years has been from the male line. And this isn't the first study to make this argument that there must be some genetic evidence for groups of Eurasian men specifically coming in and reproducing with South Asian women who are already there on the subcontinent. Okay, so why isn't this the Aryan invasion then? Well, even the Huddersfield group, questionable though their work may be, points out very clearly in that paper that this happened several times over multiple migrations. So again, there isn't evidence of one sort of big bang Aryan invasion, even though this very research was used to make that claim in popular media. This Aryan invasion argument is more a political than a, than a scientific issue at this point. It tends to be really hotly contested in the popular media. Uh, I think the, the studies that have been done of genetics, of linguistics, of the archaeology of the area are pretty conclusive by this point that there wasn't this big bang of uh, Aryans coming in from the West about 3,500 years ago. In fact, some of the genetic markers that were used in the early days before we knew more about the, the nature of haplogroups, mitochondrial and Y-chromosome haplogroups, have older subclades in India than they do from the supposedly invading populations of uh, Central Asia or the Middle East or Europe. 
which would argue for a movement of people from India into Europe or into the Middle East. So scientifically, it sounds like we have sort of an anti-Aryan invasion almost, but I would imagine that the popular scientific journalist stuff, that's probably fanned the flames for the Aryan invasion idea again, right? I guess so, at least in the public imagination. And it just goes to show that science of race and caste in India is huge. Um, to shift gears now a little bit, I just came across a really great review essay in the journal World Development last month that talks about how caste needs to be included in policy innovation that seeks to address discrimination. So this is an article that's getting back to this question that came up in Durban in 2001 about whether caste discrimination is essentially a form of racial discrimination. The author of that article, David Moss from the University of London School of Oriental and Asian Studies, makes the point that the term caste has sort of an air of archaicness or traditionalism, and that allows people to assume it must be losing importance as places like India modernize. But that doesn't seem to be the case, right? The evidence suggests that, as we said already, if anything, caste-based violence and discrimination is increasing, and it's held in place through structural inequality that confers benefits to the powerful at the expense of the lowest castes. And so from the perspective of the upper caste, there's little, if any, impulse to challenge or even to examine the underpinnings of the status quo. And Masa's article makes an important point about modern India, but I think there's still a missing piece, which is that long history of racializing caste from H.H. Risley onward. So here's what I think that we on this podcast can add to this whole discussion. The caste-based discrimination in India and the race-based discrimination in Britain and continental Europe and the United States they don't look so different from one another because they aren't different. As we've seen from all these examples today about skin whitening and resistance to Dalit affirmative action, and there's tons of other examples from Britain and the United States, it seems like the poison is just deep inside the system. Our cultural trajectories have parallel tragedies based in part on the arguments made by race scientists from a century and more ago. Do you mean history matters? I mean, history matters, Joe. No, no. <laughs> yeah, there's no question that caste discrimination is a modified version of old-fashioned European race discrimination. Ironically, the misconception that Western corporate capitalism and modernism should make caste and race sort of evaporate on its own without anyone directly addressing it, well, that's why it doesn't go away. No one wants to address these sorts of entrenched systemic inequities. So they float around back there just waiting for a strong voice in power, maybe Modi in India or Duda in Poland or Le Pen in France, or maybe even our fearless leader in the United States <laughs> is waiting for a strong voice to give the go ahead to discriminate. And then it all comes racing back out, sometimes with tiki torches and polo shirts, other times by beating dullet men with sticks. Oh, Lordy. That makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Even hearing that and, and hearing how familiar it is to our own experience right now is, is even worse. All right. That's it. We've covered way too much ground and uh, our listeners' heads and my bladder are about <laughs> to explode. So we need to stop here. There are a bunch of resources in the show notes if you want to go deeper than we've uh, already dug you in. So I'm about to leave India, which means we're going to return to our regularly scheduled programming in our next episode. And no more peacocks. <laughs> Uh, we still have to finish talking about the Enlightenment and, yes, the, and the thug heads sent to Edinburgh. Thug heads. Until then, I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. 
I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll hear from you soon or something. Comments, questions, email Joe. What? Anyway, um, <clears throat> hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking About Race. No, it's not. It's Speaking of Race. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> that we have to I say. have to have it we written have to down. <laughs> we have to save that one. <laughs>